New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry tells us how the Acoma Pueblo pottery makers use traditional methods by bringing shards of old pots of the past into the present in making new pots. This joins the past and the present in an original creation of timeless beauty. And this is what Dr. Perry will be talking about today when we explore original politics, and the joining of ancient wisdom repurposed for today, creating a new wholeness. We'll explore some of the rich and sometimes unknown American history as we explore Native America's influence on the founding of the United States. He writes, it cannot be overstated how radical the American experiment was It was a complete break from any Western government of its day, and while in some respects it harkened back to ancient Greek democracies, it was uniquely American due to the influence of Native America. Today we'll be exploring Dr. Perry's thoughts and research on how putting our country back together in full integrity requires us to remember and respect the living roots of our nation's founding. Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry is an educator, eco-psychologist, and political philosopher. He's the founder and past president of the SEED Institute and is currently the director of a grassroots think tank, the Circle for Original Thinking. Perry organized and participated in the groundbreaking Language of Spirit conferences from 1999 through 2011. It was moderated by Leroy Little Bear. That brought together Native American and Western scientists in dialogue. He's the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature and Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. He also airs a podcast, Circle for Original Thinking. Join us for the next hour as we explore the founding promise of America beyond the polarized politics of today and the restoring of faith in the transformation that is unfolding with our guest, 
Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry. I'm speaking with Glenn at his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Glenn, welcome. Ah, good to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much, Glenn. It's so good to be with you again. Uh, You begin your book with just this fabulous story of this train trip. And so you've got to share this story with our listeners of this train trip you took across the U.S., well, my, my dear friend Susan Stanton, who I've done some workshops with together, who's uh, uh, she's Haudenosaunee and Native Hawaiian, she invited me to this conference in Illinois called Honoring the Ancestors of Ancient America, which mainly had archaeologists and Native Americans. So I said, why are you inviting me, Susan? I said, you know, but she, <laughs> I think she can... She said she considered me an archaeologist of the mind. So anyway, she recommended I take Amtrak, and that was the experience. So taking Amtrak, you know, it's not the way to go if you want to get there quickly, um, but if you want to see a cross-section of America, it's perfect, and especially at the meal times, because if you're traveling alone, they pair you with uh, other people, sometimes other people that were traveling alone. And in one instance, they paired me with uh, a fellow who was from, I think, Lawrence, Kansas. And he was a big Trump supporter. This was the summer of 2016. And they paired me with uh, a gay African-American poet from Albuquerque, uh, who was so far left on the political spectrum that he considered Bernie Sanders too far to the right, <laughs> even though he supported him. And then they paired me with a Native American, um, and I'm calling him Red Hawk. And, uh, uh, and we had a very interesting conversation. Because I love dialogue, I asked them, you know, what popped into my head, what is the sacred purpose of America? And they had some very interesting answers. So that, in a way, they didn't answer the question fully, which is a hard question, and that's okay. But at the end, uh, the Native person spoke very eloquently about how this nation was built on the blood, sweat, and tears of his ancestors. And that uh, uh, you may... you. White folks may have thought they killed us all off, but we're still here. And and he said a lot of things, including we depend on, we think about money too much, that the economic cycles go boom and bust, just like in nature. And he really made an impression on me, and it, it made me think that uh, what I had already been thinking about doing for a book was a good idea, and I needed to explore further what is the sacred purpose of America and what was the influence of Native America on that founding and on that purpose. And that's how the book emerged. I wish I was a fly on the wall for that conversation. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was, you know, we all look for how to have conversations across the polarization of, with people with very diverse opinions from ours, but it's hard. It's hard to strike them up. Uh, so maybe we'll get to that later about what you're doing on that score. 
But um, I, I just wanted to go back to the subtitle of the book, and you've mentioned it already. Your subtitle is Making America Sacred Again. And what do you mean by the word sacred? How, how are you using that word? Mm. Thank you for asking that. That's an important question. Um, what comes to mind right away is my dear departed friend, Paula Gunn Allen from Laguna Pueblo, who once pointed out to me how little difference there is between the word sacred and the word scared. And she brought that up in the context of, of having the wisdom to know the power that's in the land. And, uh, and in particular, she was concerned about, uh, her uh, Laguna people and other people in that area, which is, you know, uh, where there's a lot of um, uranium. There's been a lot of uranium mining around that area. Um, and she was saying, you know, the people understood, the elders understood that the yellow dirt needs to remain under the ground. So that's the difference, you know. I mean, normally speaking, when obviously I was riffing off of Donald Trump when I said making America sacred again. And for for Trump, he was using it in a very different way. Uh, he was saying making America great again or make America great again. He was He was talking about a greatness was different. It was sort of like the 1927 Yankees, you know, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, a lot of power in that way, power to dominate over. So, but what is sacred invokes the whole. That's where it comes from, the Latin saccare. So invoking the whole is uh, is really the purpose of making that title. That's wonderful, wonderful. I'd like to really kind of jump into, um, you cover the both the wonderful things about our past, and you also cover the unpleasant truths of our past, um, mm-hmm. such as um, white supremacy. I would love for you to share with us the roots of our past. Let's go back before the Revolutionary War. I mean, when when we were even, our forefathers were talking about what to do about this monarchy that had a sway over the colonies. And who helped us out and where was it also not so great? Well, you know, it's often said that the United States was founded on genocide, and it's sometimes said that the United States was founded on the original sin of slavery. Um, When it comes to the original sin of slavery, there's certainly, that's indisputable, Um, and because there was slave trading going on since 1619, before even the Plymouth Colony. Um, When it comes to, it's founded on genocide, and I want to speak very carefully here, That's um, partly true, partly not true, because it also was founded on friendship. For 150 years um, since the Mayflower pilgrims came and, you know, with the intent of staying, you know, bringing women and children, there was a lot of cultural interchange between uh, Native American cultures and the settlers. Now, some of it was really very... uh, uh, immediately uh, confrontational. There was an attitude among most Western settlers of superiority. 
there was an attitude that uh, that they were a more developed culture, and they tended to see um, Indians, and I'm using the word Indians because that's the word that was that used then, you know, um, as uh, arrested culture or something, which of course is totally false. But um, and I see both cultures were were projecting onto the other, so uh, something that they thought they had left behind for the indians um they had they were they were dismayed that uh the settlers uh were abusive toward the land where they had learned through their own cultures their own stories talk about a process where they they learned that that was not sustainable and they changed I mean, that's in the Haudenosaunee myth of the peacemaker so there was a lot of good positive interchange, especially, especially um, from people like Roger Williams, who came in the 17th century, um, 12 years after the pilgrims. He's the one, he's the originator of church, the concept of church and state, the separation. He really did that because he was trying to protect Native Americans. He felt that... Uh, Forcing anything on another was soul rape. That's his word. Um, so he was very protective of Native and very much beloved by Native Americans. He's the founder of Rhode Island, first called Bay, Rhode Island. So let's um, let's let's yeah. get continue this story uh, in just a moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with. Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, originalthinking.us, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. And we're talking about those early moments in uh, the history of the U.S. And here we are. Um, you talked about Roger Williams, who, in fact, learned many Native languages, so he could actually converse with them. And there, there was um, also Benjamin Franklin was befriended by the Native peoples, uh, indigenous peoples. So wh what can you say about his relationship with the Native peoples? 
Well, just say one more thing about Roger Williams. Okay. He rejected the doctrine of discovery, um, and that's the doctrine, of course, in papal bulls that that that, that gave uh, Christian uh, settlers the right, supposedly, to take over, conquer um, pagan peoples. Roger Williams thought that was absurd because they're not discovering anything. The natives are already there. Um, Benjamin Franklin was a fan of Roger Williams. He's coming by a hundred years later, <laughs> you know. And and uh, and Ben Franklin, of course, was a printer of treaties. He printed treaties between Native Americans and the British, and and he actually became a Pennsylvania assemblyman and lost his position, it's reported, because he took the side of the Indians so much when he was printing the treaty. So so that actually worked out very well because Ben Franklin's next job was as commissioner, Indian commissioner, because uh, our mother country, Britain, wanted to forge a military alliance with the Haudenosaunee. So the Haudenosaunee are in a prime real estate, really, you know, Way, way long time ago, around 1132 AD, they they formed their confederacy, the Iroquois Confederacy, and they stopped warring between their tribes, but they still were a very powerful military presence. And they were right up the Hudson River, so you can imagine, you know. Um, and so uh, in the French and Indian Wars, Ben Franklin is appoint an Indian commissioner um, with some other people, but Ben Franklin is key to this because he forges a friendship with Chief Canastego, the Onondaga chief of the Haudenosaunee, and it's Chief Canastego on July 4th, 1744, who tells Ben Franklin that, and, and not just Ben, in front of all the colonists, that they should unite like the Haudenosaunee, never fall out with each other have amnity between the nations and then you will be strong like us and and so uh what happened was it took 32 years but eventually they listened to chief conestay he had already passed on then but ben franklin was the publisher of uh, those words and they were famous words and the other story behind it that's kind of an interesting legend i think it's true that Chief Conestego takes one arrow and presents it to Ben Franklin. And then before Ben Franklin even can examine it, he takes it back from him and breaks it over his leg. And then he reached behind him and grabbed a sheaf of arrows. And he spoke about how this, this sheaf of, he, once again, he, he tried to break it over his leg, but this time they didn't break. So the meaning was plain to all. Later on, when the seal, the great seal of the United States is created, much later on, uh, Ben Franklin still remembers this, and that's why in the left talon of the eagle, we have him holding the arrows. And by the way, the eagle was a sacred symbol of the Haudenosaunee. It stands on top of their great tree of peace. So there's so many symbols were borrowed from Native America. The Articles of Confederation were the first founding document. They were also borrowed from Native America. The word caucus is borrowed from Algonquin. It's an Algonquin word. So all those things, the idea of dialogue and respect, respect, listening, 
that actually came into uh, into American politics from Native America, and that's why we're so different than our mother country, where they stand and jump on the table and they yell and scream and they <laughs> yeah, we, insult we, each other. Everything, right? We yeah. see their parliament, and it's so funny that they're screaming at one another, and <laughs> ours feels so sedate. Although, in recent times, maybe not so sedate. But um, that's right. Yeah, I love that story. Where did it, now? If we get into the part of the actual founding documents, first the Articles of Confederation and then later the Constitution, and they adopted lots of the ways and and the ideas of the Native peoples, but they didn't adopt everything. So where do we go wrong in those very in that beginning? Uh. That's the perfect question, Justine. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, we di- we didn't adopt it all, even though Native America had a profound influence on the founding of this nation. The founding fathers chose what they wanted to adopt or what they understood. And the biggest thing that they left out was the role for women. So in Haudenosaunee society and other lots of Native American societies, women acted as the wisdom council. (laughs) They were the council that met first. That's the ordinary way it happens. And they give the strategic vision for the men who would then enact that vision on behalf of the women and the whole tribe. So the women, the women, by the way, had the power to remove the chief um, by taking off the deer antlers, the symbol of authority, and they can remove him. I make the contention that that is part of the reason why impeachment came into American politics. And I say that even though the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers credit the idea for impeachment to to the British uh, uh, politics. But in Britain, you could not impeach the king. You couldn't remove the king, but in Native America, you could remove the chief. So I think it had a big influence. All the founding fathers were well aware of the uh, process in Haudenosaunee society where the women could could remove the uh, chief. So absolutely, I think that's why we have the impeachment process to remove the president, although it's interesting, it doesn't seem like anything will ever remove the president. (laughs) Yeah, as we've recently discovered, yes. uh, uh, Twice have we discovered that in recent years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the other thing that wasn't included was the idea of our relationship with the natural world. And and it just, it wasn't, wasn't there. It wasn't part of it. And yet it was a huge part of the Native culture. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much for saying that. So, you know, to me, when I when I titled the book Original Politics, the difference between original politics and politics in the West ever since Socrates is just what you said, that original politics includes our relationship with the natural world. It's like when you sit in council and you have an opening, different cultures do it differently, different tribes do it differently, but usually there's an opening. That opening is to allow nature to come in, to allow your spirits to enter the room and move through the room. 
and you're acting on behalf of all our relations, not just human beings. And that is the number one thing that needs to shift in Western politics, because we've seen what happens when we don't act that way. Well, you know, uh, Glenn, you make a statement that uh, politics is not a strictly human endeavor. I mean, that's kind of like, wait a minute, you, we think of politics as all about humans and all about our, our personal uh, species affair. But you say that it's not strictly a, politics is not strictly a human um, endeavor. So help us understand that. Well, uh, the meaning of the word politics, the etymology, does come from the Greek, the palace, or the city. Um, and it was about human relations, and that's the way it's been enacted. But I'm, I'm actually suggesting a reframe of it so that we, we do things a little bit more like Native people did. Um, and that will be our salvation, really. Maybe that's an odd choice of word, but that will be our saving because, because um, if we do not uh, act in accord with the rhythms of the natural world, we always work against ourselves that way. So I, would, I say that, you know, wise, wise persons and state persons always act in accord with what is already unfolding in nature. Nature wants something to happen. So if you act in the flow of that, it gets done. If you don't, it doesn't. Right, right. Going back to my earlier question about what's not working, and where did white supremacy that's that's so apparent right now in our our national dialogue right now is is really up and did that come in really early on was oh, that yeah, part yeah. of the original sin we'll say <laughs> all right I'll yes, use the word yes it is yeah. of course Absolutely. I mean, well, all the founding fathers, with the exception of Hamilton, who might have been a mixed blood, you know, and came uh, from the Caribbean, were white male of the aristocracy, with the exception of Ben Franklin and Hamilton. So, in fact, our first six presidents were all the aristocracy. Andrew Jackson is the first one that breaks that mold. Um, so, white male supremacy was present at the very, very beginning. And, and in fact, uh, you probably heard about Abigail Adams asking her husband John to say, don't forget the ladies, or actually she said, remember the ladies, um, and uh, don't, you know, don't leave them out. Um, he, he did ignore that uh, admonition. But, you know, during the colonies, if you were a property owner and you were a woman, you could vote. And if you were, a, and during the colonies, if you were African-American and, and happened to own property, you could also vote. And in New Jersey, up until 1807, African-Americans and women could vote. And, you know, there's some oddities in the way those things unfolded. In general, uh, white supremacy was very pronounced. And it's always been there. It's, it's a shadow. So uh, this is the way I would put it, that we, we did 
listen to Native American ideas of liberty, equality, natural rights, and that's why we have that beautiful language in our Declaration of Independence and some of it in the Constitution, but we left out some parts, so we created a shadow. So we left out women, we left out people of color, and that's why we eventually have the Civil War. That's why we have, before the Civil War, even the women's movement starts in 1848, and that too was inspired by Native American women. So they're the ones that 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 provided the model of equality and inspired the the first women elizabeth katie stanton lucretia mott and matilda gage to start the women's movement in 1848 i'm here with glenn aparicio perry and he's the author of original politics making america sacred again i'm justine willis toms you're listening to new dimensions I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Politics, and that's what we're talking about. And we're just talking about the the women and how they were left out at first, and then as time went on, 1848, things were were um, heating up for for women in their protests. Can you can you help us understand that more thoroughly? Sure, sure. And if it's okay with you, I wanted to read a a piece from uh, the influence of Native America on the 19th century women's movement. Would that be okay, Perfect, perfect. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So how did the first radical suffragists of the United States, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Matilda Gage, come to a vision of equality for women? All these women were living in 19th century America a time when a woman fleeing a violent husband would be routinely returned to him by police, just as runaway slaves were returned to their masters. How did these women who lived in a society where they were required to pay taxes but had no voice in the direction of government, could not vote, could not run for office, lost all property rights once they married, had no right of divorce, and if they separated from their husbands, lost all custody rights to their children, whose oppression was sanctioned by the Bible, with their husbands having the legal right and religious responsibility to physically discipline them. How in the world did these women, who were not even permitted to speak aloud in church, have the courage to ask for equal rights? They did so because they were living nearby Native women who befriended them and showed them another way. These Native women were fully equal in their society. Their responsibilities were in balance with men. Their children were members of the mother's clan, and they controlled their own use of property. The Native women's work was satisfying and done alongside other women, as opposed to the mostly isolated drudgery of the colonial household, and they were responsible for agriculture in addition to the home life. 
Moreover, the women were understood to be spiritually related to Mother Earth herself, a relationship that ensured respect. In fact, they lived in a society where rape and violence toward women was almost unheard of and severely punished if it were to occur. These native women happened to be Haudenosaunee or Iroquois, the same group that strongly influenced the founding fathers of the United States. But in truth, they could have been from any number of other tribes with similar traditions of equality for women. Thank you for indulging me. Sarah. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That That's so vivid and really cements it down in our, in our brain of what really happened and being... Um, the, the influence of the Native women on these newcomers. I want to skip ahead a little bit uh, into some of the places that we are right now and some of the things that you talk about in your book. And you mentioned something that I think is really, really, really important, and it has to do with our addiction to economic growth. Even in as we're talking about climate change, and right now we can feel it because we're doing this interview today, you know, as, as Texas is going through a huge upheaval with the freeze that's going on in Texas and, and also in having to do with the climate. And so I'm wondering, uh, even with that, we our, our present president, Biden, will talk about Okay, well, it'll, if we do, if we really look at climate change, we can, um, it'll give us more jobs. But there may be something else that we should look at and that's a deeper sort of way of, of holding this. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that, Glenn. Well, thank you. Um, no, it's true that we're we're very addicted to economic growth, and that's true on either side of the uh, political aisle. So, if you're a uh, if you're uh, a liberal progressive, you want as much economic growth as possible because then you can provide more social programs. If you're a, uh, a fiscal conservative, you want a lot of economic growth so that you can cut taxes. Um, and even independents like Bernie Sanders tend to be for uh, pro as much growth as possible. And ultimately, you cannot grow infinitely on a finite planet. You know, so the idea of of sustaining, even the word sustainable is probably, I used it myself earlier in the conversation, it's probably a not an advisable term because it's not about sustaining because sustaining the way we've been doing things is a recipe for disaster. So we have to change. You have to get really deeper in the roots. And you're absolutely right, you know, about the Green New Deal and other projects that have been put forward um, normally are sold as a way of increasing economic growth and going for green jobs and stuff. And that can be, you know, that probably is a good transition of what we need to do. But we also need to look deeper. And when we look at something like climate change, um, we are always asking the wrong questions, in my view. So it's not about whether humans are creating climate change because we are the climate, we are the light, we are the air, we are the water, we are the earth. That's what we're made of. That's what all 
water beings are made of. So the best question to ask, in my view, is what can climate change teach us? And it can teach us how we are radically interrelated with all there is. Uh, and that's, of course, a lesson that Native America has understood. And it's a lesson that the Western cultures used to under, understand also. I mean, that's what, you know, if you go back in the, in the West, you can look at Leonardo da Vinci, and he'll talk about how the human body is a mi microcosm of the macrocosm, you know, and and that the, the blood, the bones, and... The lungs, you know, mimic the tides moving in and out, mimic the rocks on the earth, mimic the 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 arteries and of uh, in our in our heart, mimic the rivers, streams, capillaries of the earth. All this was understood for a long, long time, and it's very profoundly important. And this is really hard. I mean, the solution to doing this really takes a huge shift in consciousness because as long as we are addicted to the concept of economic growth, which is how our economies are set up, it's how our politicians get reelected and what have you, um, we'll never be able to change. So it's, uh, I don't have an easy solution, but I, I do see this as being necessary. I'm thinking this reminds me of what happened uh, in, I think, 2017 in New Zealand, where they actually gave a river personhood and all its tributaries. I'm, I'm just reminded of this when you talk about we are water beings. Describe that. Oh, how, how can you call us water beings? But we are water. I mean, we're seventy. I mean, you hear different percentages all the time, you know. But we're approximately ninety percent at birth, and then we're, you know, we we kind of we kind of lose some water over time. But we're basically about seventy percent water as a as a uh, adult. Um, we're in approximately the same measure as the oceans cover the earth. So we we are water beings, and uh, um, I mean the way uh, this is why. Indigenous peoples have always prayed to the elements. You know, you're, they're they're the what make us up. They're the creators, really, of it all, and uh, very very sacred. And so, when we despoil water, let's say we drill through water for oil, and we create spills, we're ultimately hurting ourselves because we're water beings, and we depend on pure water to be alive. So that is, uh, that's why we have to keep this in mind. That's why, you know, because we're going to kill ourselves besides killing off all the other, other uh, critters on the earth if we don't pay mind to this. And we can see this vividly right now as uh, things are unfolding in Texas. It's the lack of water that is really causing so much havoc. Right now, I mean, the cold is the cold, and that's bad. But not having water is is tough, tough, tough. So this is a well, reminder. Vandana yeah. Shiva, so you know, who wrote Water Wars many, many years ago, and was prescient in understanding how that was going to play out, and is playing out even exactly. today. Exactly. 
Exactly. You know, one of the images, I don't know if you were able to see it, but uh, you have a, a chapter that's um, uh, called um, The Dream of Mother Earth, A Turtle Island Renaissance. And um, it, the, the idea of Turtle Island, There's uh, there was an image uh, with all the cold that was happening in the Gulf um, below Texas, all the sea turtles were because because they're cold blooded. They they needed to be warm, and they went up to the surface. They couldn't even raise. They were so cold they couldn't raise their heads to breathe. And there were pictures of them, Glenn, just warehouses of wall to wall sea turtles. Uh, it just it just struck me as Mother Earth just saying. You know, wait a minute. It was such a call to, hey, look at this. And when you see all these turtles, I mean, just it looks like miles of turtles. Um, oh my God! That they're trying to <laughs> to rescue. I, I don't know how successful the rescue will be, but they're they're doing a a brave attempt. But it's a direct. I feel. Uh, Caution from Mother Earth. I like if we couldn't, if you talk about listening to the land and listening to the earth, this one is really kind of nailing it. Yeah. Well, that feels like a, you know, you know how sometimes life is like a dream? And that feels like a dream to me because this is Turtle Island. So here we are. You're saying, yeah, this is a call from the land, but it's manifesting itself in the symbol, you know, turtle, you know. And so many different traditions have this idea of of this a turtle as kind of a creator, you know, that's it's, it's the back of the turtle that we're living upon. Um, so all these turtles, God, that reminds me of who I don't remember who it was the the the, the famous woman who said that it's turtles all the way down. I mean, did, oh right, <laughs> yeah, turtles still right. I don't remember either, but I remember so, the thought. So they were talking about origin stories. <laughs> this is what's underneath the turtle? It's turtles all the way down. It's it's uh, you know the Turtle Island Renaissance. That term, I, I was doing a, a radio show with Leroy Little Bear, actually Native America calling um, uh, with uh, Harlan Macasato, dearly departed ancestor. Now, and he and a caller called in and said that you know the Europeans had their Renaissance. It's time for a Turtle Island Renaissance. See, I don't know who that caller is. I'd like I to give him it. credit, but it's I a beautiful it. term, and I've it. adopted it. <laughs> I love it. I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and we're talking about Turtle Island, where we're living right now. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and we're talking about making America sacred again, or tuning into that sacredness of this beautiful place that we live. And um, I know that you talk, Glenn, about and you write about the similarities of Lincoln and Obama. And it's a very interesting take that you have there. I'd, I'd love for you to share your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, well, I personally think that uh, that Barack Obama is probably the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> now, I don't come right out and say that in the book, so I'm just saying it to you and whoever's listening now. <laughs> but, but think about it. They're both tall and thin with big ears. <laughs> they, neither one was born in Illinois, but they traveled relatively long distance to get to Illinois. Obama from Hawaii in the age of airplanes and Lincoln in the age of trains and whatever he could get on um, from, you know, Kentucky and through various states and finally gets to Illinois. Uh, they serve a short term in the Congress and then uh, they both, under great odds, totally unexpected for both, emerge as the president in an extremely divisive time. One of them is the Civil War era, and uh, Lincoln ends up freeing the slaves, and Barack Obama becomes the first African-American president. The one thing that Lincoln didn't do, that Barack Obama did do, and it's another reason why I think he could almost be the reincarnation, um, is Lincoln was, of course, a big hero for African-Americans, but as far as Native Americans, the same things occurred in the 19th century. It was still the Long Walk happened to the Navajo. Um, the Sand Creek Massacre happened um, uh, up in Colorado, near the area of Littleton, Colorado, which I, I suggest is one of the reasons why that land hasn't been healed and we have a problem there. Um, but Barack Obama did do things for Native America. He was beloved by Native America. He settled a lot of treaties. And I mean, most of this was financial, um, but he settled a lot of treaties and he treated Native people with respect and he was beloved by Native America. So then I also talk about the similarities between Andrew Johnson and, and Donald Trump. So, you know, the person who's the successor to to Lincoln uh, tries to undo a lot of what Lincoln had accomplished, and that's why the Reconstruction got off to such a, a slower start. Andrew Johnson was a lot like Donald Trump um, and uh, also was impeached and was, was spared being removed by exactly one vote. And in, in the similarity there is after Lincoln passed, then there was the Reconstruction. If he had lived, if he had been able to to oversee the Reconstruction, it might have been different. But the way it turned out is all the Jim Crow legislation came in and segregation came in. And so there was this whole backlash after the emancipation of the slaves. And then that also was similar to what happened after Obama. Can you elaborate on that? Is that? That's very true. What Van Jones called it was a black lash. Uh, that mm. was really apropos. <laughs> it's kind of brutal imagery, but it was really true and has, you know, makes you think of slavery and people being being literally lashed. So um, that's absolutely true. 
Um, at the same time, you know, um, a lot of these figures that we think of uh, or we might uh, judge as, as being uh, uh, not our best presidents, they sometimes can be instrumental in making change in almost the exact opposite way that they intended. So, you know, Donald Trump, I call him a catalyst for the revealing of the American shadow. So some of the things we've been talking about, a better awareness of what America really is came about because Donald Trump was president. So now there is a little bit better awareness of systemic racism in this country. Um, and in, a, in an awkward, odd way, we have Donald Trump to thank for that because of what is the response to him. Also, the sexism that was pervasive during the 2016 presidential campaign produced both the Women's March, which then produced more women than ever running for office, which then produced the Me Too movement. And so we've had really substantive change in the society. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I actually think that we are now... The Republican Party is in, is in terrible shape, but it's similar to perhaps 1852 or 1854, and there may be a new party gestating. So back in the 1850s, we had a the Know-Nothing Party. It was officially called the American Party, but it's it's it was known as the Know-Nothing Party. It's a little like... Uh, if you've watched Hogan's Heroes and it was uh, Sergeant <laughs> Schultz or something, I know nothing, you know, so that's kind of like, that's what, it, you know, they would say that as a secret code before they got into their meetings. But they were very, an anti-immigration, anti-black, anti-women, anti-Quakers, Jews. Um, they were a radical, racist and xenophobic party, but they placed this is, in the worst case, they placed about 100 congresspeople, never a president, but they had a run during the 1850s. But fortunately, the Know-Nothing Party and the Whig Party, which had split into two factions, one of them pro-advancement of slavery to new territories and one of them not, they, they folded, the Know-Nothings folded, and we got the Republican Party of Lincoln. And that was a beautiful thing. So there is hope that Republicans will completely restructure now. And, and I just want to ask you, um, and I, I believe I, I know that you feel it's really important that we have two strong parties, that this is, this is they would be a, a nice check and balance, but you also consider them in a whole way that they're not like opposition, so to speak, but there there's a wholeness to it that they they come to uh, together in a way that that's cooperating. I'm not being very yes, articulate about this, but yes, you're saying it perfectly. They are complementarities rather than opposition. They need to understand that they complete each other. There's a movement in nature for progression, and there's a movement in nature to conserve. So, so those two things should be able to work together well, and we all need to work together to protect the ecology. Conservatives 
um, for conservatives, if they conserve the most important things, the light, air, water, earth. And they did that as recently as the Nixon administration, which created the EPA and, and, and the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts were passed then. And which was bipartisan. They, they, they hashed yeah. it out together yeah. in a, in a, yeah. a cogent yeah. way. Yes. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're not going to solve the problems of all the politics right now. But, of course, <laughs> money has a lot to do with it. And money has come in and has corrupted the system so that both parties really are beholden a little bit more than they used to be. And so they're forgetting the most important things. But we, the people, have to insist that they don't forget that. But we also have to insist that they respect each other. I mean, John McCain, who right before he died, voted thumbs down famously to stop the uh, repeal of the Affordable Care Act. He was protesting against the abandonment of regular order, which doesn't sound like anything very sexy, but it's the process in politics where where the minority party has a chance to give its input and there are amendments and, you know, a bill goes through a regular process. It doesn't happen in a back room that ignores the minority party. We've gone away from that in the last 25 years. We both parties, um, when in power, are are are, are not uh, involving the minority party enough. Um, so this is a big problem. Ultimately, we do have to respect. I ended the book with love. Some some of your listeners may think, oh, that's naive or something, but I think ultimately, ultimately, you know, as Martin Luther King said, you know, hate is not going to conquer hate. Only love can do that. Um, and every human being deserves respect and compassion. And when Ramana Maharshi was asked, how should we treat others? He replied, there are no others. And ultimately, that is, that is what, that's the reason why I'm even interested in politics as a means of understanding how human beings interact so that we can get to love, so that we can get to more kindness and compassion and respect for Mother Earth. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And um, I know that one of the things that you talk about are the dialogue circles and how listening to one another is is truly, truly, truly important. And more than what we have to say, but the listening is really the key. Thank you. Yeah, well, I was very blessed to be the... uh, executive director of the Seed Institute, and for 13 years we we uh, um, sponsored the Language of Spirit conferences, which were uh, moderated by Leroy Little Bear, a very wise Blackfoot elder, and a very wise people in the circle, and that was a great learning, um, and listening for the purpose of understanding, rather than trying to uh, persuade somebody of uh, your opinion is where it's at. Yep, yes. Well, we're going to have to end there. I thank you so much, Glenn, for being part of New Dimensions today. And I've been speaking with Glenn Aparicio Perry. He is the author of Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. And uh, 
if you want to know more about his work, he also has a podcast, so you can check that out. It's called Circle for Original Thinking is his podcast, so check that out, as well as his website, originalthinking.us. Or you can give there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3728. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.